We're in Mark 7 today, verse 31 through 37. We're going to finish Mark 7. We're going to finish Mark by the end of the year in Jesus' name. Don't laugh. Just kidding. I was thinking this week of Hudson Taylor, who was the the founder of the China Inland Mission. I mean, Hudson Taylor's day, there had been a lot of focus on the kind of um, coastal regions in China, because just for trade's sake, port's sake. And so there had been some missionaries that had gone to China and done some work, again, around the ports. Um, but Hudson Taylor felt convicted that there needed to be a movement that moved further inland. And so uh, he set his face to really see that accomplishment, uh, that task accomplished. There's a story of when he was training. Uh, he was doing some medical training. He wanted to uh, go on the field and serve in that way as a physician to be able to reach people. And he was doing some medical training, and he was working with a man who was very sick and on his deathbed. But this man was so annoyed with Christianity, so annoyed with anything to do with religion at all. He was a devout atheist. It was said that um, recently, before Hudson Taylor got there, there was a pastor who came to try to share the gospel with this man because, again, he's on his deathbed, and the man spit in the pastor's face. He was that frustrated with religion. Don't spit in my face, please, because Jesus said, turn the other cheek, but that's going to be a hard one, okay? Too much wrestling as a kid. Needless to say, Hudson Taylor just served the man, kind of nurtured him back to health, served him for a season, um, didn't didn't share the gospel at all. Um, but one day, Hudson Taylor had grown so desperate, so frustrated. He was so burdened for this man's life that he burst into tears standing in the man's hospital room and just began to weep and cry and to, to beg the man, let me pray with you. Let me pray with you. You need to let me pray with you. And the man was so kind of put off by the tears that finally the man said, man, if it would make you feel better, go ahead. Hudson Taylor began to pray and pr- like poured his heart out in prayer. And he said when he was done, he noticed that there was a shift in the man's heart. And he wasn't totally sure what had taken place, but the man never turned away another gospel minister. When preachers came to pray with him or share the gospel, the man would sit quietly and listen and nod. And Hudson Taylor, telling this story kind of in his journals, he he quoted Psalm 126.5 that I thought of as I was preparing this sermon. Psalm 126.5 um It says this, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And Hudson Taylor said, in many ways, as it pertains to the gospel, there's obviously natural imagery here that as people go out into their fields and they're praying with tears, weeping, asking God to bless their families. This is an agricultural picture that there would be rain from heaven that would cause them to be prosperous in the natural. And he's saying that this imagery, it carries right over into the spiritual realm that those who have a burden for evangelism, who in tears share the gospel, they'll reap or they'll have a harvest with great joy. This morning, we're going to find Jesus healing a man who's deaf and mute. And in the midst of the encounter, we're going to kind of stumble into Jesus. As he gets ready to heal the man, the scripture says that he released a deep sigh. He exhales. Burden, frustration. As we turn, guys, to, to get ready for our, pra- our our fast in July, um, on July 21 through August 10. And we're praying, we've said we're praying um, that God would re- release a prayer movement in our region. We're asking God to release a movement of intercession. I am convicted, and I'll share more on this in the days to come, 
that for for a season in the West, we've done ministry over and over and over again by the strength of our own strategies, by the strength of our own wisdom. We've done ministry on the basis of the personality of the preacher. We've got, we've got celebrity preachers. What a shame. We've not made a celebrity of Jesus Christ. We've made a celebrity of our preachers. And I'm suggesting in this season, as we step into this fast, I'm asking God to, to not only release a move of repentance in the church, where we turn away from ministry that says, we're going to prop up our most charismatic people and hope that their charisma will draw the nations. As we turn away from that kind of ministry, we repent of prayerlessness. And, and I'm praying in this fast that we will repent of prayerlessness and have a cultural shift in our region where intercession and prayer becomes the, the tip of our movement, right? We're not just going to prop up the most gifted person. We're going to prop up the most gifted person whose name is Holy Spirit, right? Like, and repentance can't just be turning away from something. It's turning to something. And so we want to turn to going to God in prayer and prayer and begging the Lord to send the Spirit of God to woo many to the to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus saying again, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto myself. If I be lifted up, I will draw. If he be lifted up, and he was lifted up on the cross of, of Calvary. He was lifted up and he said, I will draw all men unto myself. Not the charisma of your best speaker. I We're going to cry out for the drawing of the Holy Spirit of this region to Jesus. But again, that means we have to turn away from this kind of performance, charisma-based religion to a place where we really put our faces in the ground and say with Jesus, this house will be a house of prayer. Now, when we step into the fast, we are praying for, by the way, you can sign up online. Um, Brad will help you connect with that. You'll see it on our socials and stuff. And and we are going to pray for at least 20 people to say yes to helping us launch this prayer movement. Now, I think that the majority of our body will engage in prayer meetings. We, we have great attendance in our prayer meetings. But I'm looking for 20 people who will say, I have a burden for prayer, and I'll commit one night a week to leading a prayer movement for the next year. Okay, I think that there are many moms in the room. You've got 14 kids, okay? And you're like, I am going to pray. We love you. We're so thankful that you're going to. But you probably don't have the capacity to help lead the prayer movement in this season of your life. You need to change a few more diapers, okay? So we're looking for people who have the capacity and the burden. So as we fast, we're praying for the, capa- the, the burden to be released on some people in our church to help us shift from charisma, performance-based religion, outreach, to, to intercessory prayer and evangelism, okay? And so we're, we're looking for at least one prayer meeting a week, uh, one prayer meeting a night in our church, for the next years to come. And we've, we've got multiple prayer meetings already taking place, but we want at least one prayer meeting a day, and we're believing for the fire of God to, to rest on this church. Now, I said all that to say that what we see in Jesus's ministry today is burden, okay? We see a broken personality. We see Jesus standing before a sick person and, and not excited, not thrilled. We don't see in Jesus this need to be seen by the crowds. When a man stands before a sick person and sighs, you feel burden, brokenness. And we've talked about in the past the way that intercessory prayer and evangelism are forever intertwined. The greatest missionaries were praying men who preached the gospel. 
But where these two movements, these two giftings intertwine, where they wrap up is in the burden. The, the, the broken heart. The, the soul that's been crushed by the need of humanity. Now, I want to say a few things. There are times in your Christian life where you get to the bottom of your barrel, right? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You're just exhausted. And there, there is such a thing as Christian duty. There are times where I am so worn out and frustrated and tired that I'm doing the right things on the basis of duty. That, that is, there is such a thing as Christian duty. But I think that's the lowest part of your barrel. That the church at her best is doing evangelism not out of duty, not out of performance. The church at its best is not praying because she thinks if she doesn't pray, God's going to stop loving her. Right? The church at her best knows that she's the apple of God's eye, period. The church at her best is not praying, evangelizing, discipling from duty or out of performance, but out of burden. Burden is looking at our region through the eyes of Jesus and embracing the sigh of our Savior. Burden is, I'm going to pray, obviously because I love God and I want to worship, obviously. I'm not praying because I think I need to check a box to make God love me. I am broken over the amount of addiction in our region. I'm broken over the amount of souls headed for hell when there's a loving God and a cross with blood staining it, begging for their souls. I'm burdened at the, at the despair of our region. And so I pray not out of duty because I have to. I'll get there at times. I don't pray out of performance trying to earn God's love. I pray out of burden because I've seen my region through the eyes of my Messiah. I've heard him sigh. Let me read to you the passage. And I'm just going to kind of continue to show you some things. And if you're annoyed with me again, my email is brad at christianrenewalhhi.org. I would love to hear from you. Love to hear from you. Verse 31, chapter 7. He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. Remember again, that's ten kind of Gentile cities. They brought to him a man who was deaf and who had a speech impediment. The Greek literally there reads that he struggled to speak. So sometimes it'll say he's deaf and mute in your translation. Um, but here it's a speech impediment. He struggled to speak. They begged him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epitaph, that is be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, remember last week we read that Jesus 
he had had this in the beginning of chapter seven. He had this cycle of events where religious people were confronting him. So he had scribes come from Jerusalem. The religious elite, the greatest scholars of the day came from Jerusalem to nitpick Jesus's ministry. And you remember all they found was that Jesus's disciples didn't wash their hands in, in a way that the elders had told them to before they ate. So they began to try to um, unravel or rip the rug out from under Jesus's ministry and his momentum on the basis of the fact that his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. So Jesus responds to them with frustration. He rebuts them in debate style with passion. Then we read in chapter seven, he turned to the crowd and he said to the crowd, he said, listen to me. He said, what comes into a man's mouth does not make him impure or unclean, but what comes out of the man's heart. So Jesus has this debate with the religious leaders, and then he rebukes the crowds and says, you've been baptized in a kind of religious spirituality that is so ungodly, you have no concept of what cleanliness really is. And so we found Jesus frustrated, angry, if you will, righteously. And then we read last week that he turned and he walked to a Gentile region. And the scripture told us that Jesus went into a house and wanted no one to know where he was. Remember, we said Jesus was an introvert. Praise God. I can't prove that. I just like that passage of scripture that Jesus went into a house and he didn't want anybody to know where he was. In other words, Jesus wanted to be alone. He wanted solitude. He wanted to be in the presence of his father. He was tired of fighting with these religious elites and he, he wanted to be alone with God. But the scripture says there was a desperate woman who had a daughter who was demonized. She brought her demonized daughter to Jesus and she begged him. She was a Gentile. She just kept begging him. And she prevailed upon Jesus with her desperation. And we said last week that desperation is a beautiful attribute that every Christian should, should cling to. Because theologically speaking, God does not turn away the desperate. So now we find Jesus returning uh, back towards the Sea of Galilee, back towards um, um, a region that he's ministered before outside of the Decapolis. This would be the area where he um, drove out thousands of demons from this demoniac who was living in the tombs. But the scripture tells us, and scholars kind of chitter chatter about this, that Jesus walked a really strange way. If you follow it geographically, he kind of went a, the long way around. And they talk about why would he have done that? I want to suggest again that Jesus is looking for some solitude. Do you ever take the long way home after work? That's just me. <laughs> um, don't tell my wife I said that, please. It just came out from the overflow of the heart. The mouth speaks. Don't tell her I said that. Um, he, he takes the long way around, and I think he's looking for solitude. I think he's still carrying a measure of frustration. Now, what we find today is that when he steps into the Decapolis again, remember that this was the place where that demoniac was delivered from thousands of demons. And the demoniac says to Jesus, let me be one of your disciples. Let me get in the boat with you. Let me walk with you. Let me be an apostle. And Jesus says to the demoniac, no, this Gentile man, you're not going to be an apostle. You're not going to go with me. You're going to stay here and you're going to tell this region what I've done for you. Now, it might just be coincidence, but what we have today is that when Jesus comes back to the region, everybody wants a piece of him. So when Jesus steps into Tyre and Sidon, after walking the, the long way around, the crowd rages with excitement. Now, this is fascinating, and I know that we're doing a little deep dive here, a little deep meditation, but I need you guys to go with me. They begged Jesus to lay his hands on this deaf and mute man. 
There are times where Jesus will heal the sick. There are times where Jesus will feed thousands of people with miraculous bread. There are times where Jesus will woo the crowds by casting out a demon and thousands of people will look on Jesus and his glory and they'll see the signs and they'll wonder about who this man is. There are times where Jesus will step into the center of the town square and be the center of attention and let everyone see his glory and his power, but not today. He steps into town and thousands of people surround him. They're pressing him. They're saying, heal this man. But Jesus seems to want nothing to do with it. Jesus is not going to perform a great miracle in front of the masses today. Jesus, why don't you want to display your glory to the masses? Some of us, our entire theological concept is that God only wants to display his glory to the crowds. And I want to show you today that there are just times where God doesn't. I think that we see in the text when we read it slowly and long enough that there is a sense in which Jesus is not thrilled that this man is being drugged around and thrown before him as a spectacle. I don't think that Jesus is always for using people as props. I don't think that is the burden. So there are times where people demand a sign in Jesus' ministry. Let me show you just a few examples to prove my point. I'm right, by the way, just so you know. Matthew 12, verse 38 through 42. Some scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, what do we have? We have religious people saying to Jesus, Show us your power. We want to see miraculous works. Give us a sign. If you give us a sign, then it would testify to us that you are who you say you are. Show us what you can do. And Jesus says, no. That ain't how this works. No sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. In other words, the only sign you're getting is when I get up out of the grave. You're not getting a sign from me. Jesus says in John 6, there were some who who came to him, a crowd who came to him, And Jesus said, you come to me because you ate the bread and you had its fill, not because you saw the signs. In other words, in John 6, we have this scenario where Jesus is fed thousands again with miraculous bread. And the next day, people chase him down. And Jesus says, you're coming to me right now just because you want bread, not because you saw the sign and wanted the truth that the sign pointed to. In other words, again, The sign of feeding with bread was supposed to show you that I am the bread of life, that I am the manna of heaven. You don't want to receive that truth. You just want miraculous power. Sometimes people with our theological convictions, meaning we believe in signs and wonders, we believe God still heals the sick, we believe that God still brings deliverance to those who are oppressed, we believe in the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes people who believe that with us begin to crave power, not because they have the burden of Jesus for the broken, but only because they want to be entertained by a supernaturally charged atmosphere. And many movements build their entire base off of propping people up and using people as spectacles in hopes of gaining attention. And people flood the church and they say, look how desperate we are for God. Look how much we want you, Jesus. And I don't think they really want Jesus. I think what they want to be is to be entertained 
by, by spiritual power. And Jesus today has a man who's drugged before him. And I'm just going to suggest a few things. The man's, the man's deaf and the man's mute. When Billy Graham came to a city, he sent hundreds of people before him to tell everybody he's coming. Jesus just didn't do that. And we know that he walked the long way around, meaning even the way he walked didn't make any sense. So no one knew when Jesus was coming. And when Jesus showed up, thousands of people rushed around. And here's this deaf, mute man thrown in front of him. How do you explain to a deaf and mute man quickly that there's a Jewish rabbi who just walked into your Gentile city who we think might be able to heal you? And the deaf man have enough time to process that. How do you do that? I think there's a chance the deaf man has no idea what's happening. He's just being drugged by his shirt collar. And I think there's a chance there's fear in his face and frustration in his face. What are you doing? Why are you pulling me? Why are all these people shouting? What in the world is happening? And if I'm right about this this kind of concept, I want to suggest that Jesus sees this. Thousands of people flood to him. Show us a sign. Look, we have a deaf mute man. And Jesus says, no. That is not the burden. The burden we're looking for is not desperation to be entertained by a supernaturally charged atmosphere. The burden we are looking for, praise, when the anointing of the Spirit falls on us and it feels like heaven in the room, praise and intercedes. And the the burden we're looking for, praise when we're tired, exhausted, and there's nothing spiritually charged at all happening right like last saturday last sunday night we were in the um corner park on the top praying and it was like heaven just fell it was the most beautiful wonderful time it was beautiful well chances are we're not going to have that experience sunday night tonight but i'm still going to be praying because what i'm after what i have to be after again is not these heavenly experiences where god's glory baptizes me although i love that But that's God's right to pour that out when God wants to pour that out. What I'm after is the burden that caused Jesus to look at a sick man and sigh. And I want to be driven. I want us to be driven in prayer, driven in evangelism by the burden, not the desire to be entertained by charismatic men, nor supernaturally charged atmospheres. We love when God heals the sick. Somebody say amen. We love it. We love when God heals the sick. But sometimes, when God heals the sick, we're not going to prop that person up and explain all of their life story. Although testimony is good, and we love testimony when the individual wants to testify. But there are times I've seen where churches will begin to use individuals as props and marketing tools to say, look what God did in our church through this person, and the person doesn't really want anything to do with it. And sometimes the person feels pressure to extend the story and dramatize the story a little more than what really happened. And that's what I would call church, listen to me, fake. That's fake. What we, we love a testimony of God healing a sick person when it happens and it rises out of the person's heart and it glorifies Jesus. We love it. We want more of it. But we're also at the same time going to recognize that we're not going to use people as props. Y'all aren't hearing what I'm saying today because you're sinners, just pure sinners. Are you following the thought at all? There were these kind of miracle workers in Jesus' day. I just wanted to show you a few. Um, For instance, in Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through 11, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Okay, so we got a man named Simon. He practices magic in the city, and he amazes the people, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him for a long time because he amazed them with his magic. What do we have? We have people in Jesus's day who do magic in the city. Crowds come to watch and they're amazed at him. Jesus is saying to this crowd today, I am not a magician. I'm not a sorcerer. Watch again. We move a little further in Acts 13. We have a man named Bar-Jesus, which means son of, son of Jesus, son of Joshua, or Elymas, who was a magician and a false prophet. And he wooed the crowds with his spiritual powers. And, and this is what they, I think this is what they want from Jesus today. They want Jesus to be Simon the sorcerer, to come to the center of the town square and to perform some magic so that everybody can be excited, and then we can hear what you have to say. And Jesus is just going, no, I am not a magician. I am the compassionate, incarnate son of God. And I won't be manipulated by the masses. And this is fascinating. Listen to me, fascinating. That Jesus leaves the 99, if you will, in this scenario. He leaves the masses. He intentionally performs this miracle away from the crowd. He doesn't even want them to see it. And it's as if Jesus is saying, concerning this this deaf and mute man, he will not be a prop. He will not be made a spectacle of. You're not going to just go grab a a random leper and drag him in front of me and expect me to put on a show for you. I'm not doing that. And many times, we again, we want to do that with people's stories of brokenness. We want to celebrate when the broken are healed but their stories of brokenness are not for your entertainment. Jesus takes him away from the crowd, and the scripture says very intentionally that Jesus led the man to privacy. Now, what does that look like? Again, you have a a deaf man and a mute man. He can see, but he can't hear or speak. I think there's a chance Jesus grabs him by the hand, leads him out of the crowd, away from the masses, walks a little while. You've got to walk a little while to get away from this crowd. I don't think the man, again, had any idea what was going on. Jesus sticks his fingers. He gets in the man's face, and he sticks his fingers in the man's ears. As if to say, this is your problem. Ears are your problem. You got that. Again, he's, he's communicating with a man who can't communicate. The scripture reads that Jesus spits and touches his tongue. Now, that grosses everybody out in the room, and you're all going, why in the world would Jesus use spit? Historically speaking, this is a strange truth, but it is a truth. Uh, physicians in this day used spit, believed spit to be have healing properties, believed it to be a bit of an antibiotic. They, they just used spit. Not only did physicians use it, but even rabbis used spit at times as like a salve or an anointing. Also, there was a sense in which sometimes, I'll show you one story from history. I know you're like, we don't really want to know this story, but here we go. Vespasian was a Roman emperor, like 69 to 79, so like a generation after Jesus, right after Jesus. And uh, you know how Rome was when there was an emperor, uh, they kind of propped themselves up as a god or like the chosen one. Well, Vespasian had a season that was like everything was just working out for him. And he kind of began to believe his own press, like he was God's chosen one for the nations, right? And he was just feeling really good about himself. Well, two men came to him. They came to him and they both said that they had dreams from a goddess named Serapis, which was essentially a god that they made up to um, kind of bring unity between Egypt and and Rome. They kind of merged a Roman god with uh, an Egyptian god. 
And both of these men said they had a dream from this God who told them that if the emperor would spit on their, one man was blind, if the emperor would spit in your eyes, then you would be healed. The other man had an issue in his leg, and he said if the emperor would spit, essentially spit on your leg, then you would be healed. Now, Vespasian was a smart man, and so he went to the doctors, and he said, essentially, if this goes well, everyone's going to believe that I am powerful, and I'm going to gain influence. This is, in our day, that would be really good press, okay? Social media viral. Emperor chose it. His spit heals people if this goes well. If this goes poorly, the people are going to react poorly, and it's not going to be good for my leadership. Well, the physicians come back and they say, uh, this is in, in Tacitus, which is a first century historian. Tacitus tells us the story. The physicians come back and say, look, the blind man is only partially blind. Okay, so if he's not healed by your spit, I think we can play this. Okay, I think we can twist. That's a good, forgive me for saying this, that's a good TBN healing man. Okay, did he just say that? Um, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes not. I'm not saying everyone, gosh, get out of that hole. Um, he's kind of blind, okay? Kind of blind. And the man who's claiming that he has this major issue and can't walk, his leg's dislocated. We could twist that. And so they say, let's just go for it. Even if they're not healed, we think we can make this look okay. And so he spits in the man's eye, and he spits on the man's leg, and, and the men both claim to be healed, and it's great press. Great press for this Roman emperor. Now, again, what all I'm trying to show you is in history... You have these examples of like the spit of a holy man brings healing. Now, what do we know about Jesus? Oh, I don't know. He's the word of God who's like calls all of creation to come into being. He doesn't need to spit on anybody. Um, he, he doesn't even need to touch. We figured that out by now. Jesus doesn't need to, to use any kind of magician-like practices. But what we have in this instance is Jesus trying to communicate with a man who can't communicate. And so I think it's very likely that Jesus stuck his fingers in his ears and then spits because the man knows what spit's used for. I think as he does this act, which, again, we think's gross, um, we could all take turns spitting on Pastor Brad later. Just kidding. Um, sorry. Nah, I don't know if that was the right response. He said, bring it. Yep, 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 yep. Um, as, as Jesus is going through this act, I think the man comprehends what's happening. Okay, so he just got drug around through crowds. He's being thrown left and right. He has no idea what's happening. This random man just walked him out of the city. And now as he sticks his fingers and spits, the man goes, oh, you're, you're going to heal me. Or you're attempting to heal me. And the scripture says that, that as Jesus touches his tongue with his spit, again, he sighs. <sighs> what in, in this case, he's, he's burdened, brokenhearted, he has despair and sorrow over this man's condition, right? He, he's frustrated with the crowds, that the crowds want to make a prop of him. But he's also standing in the man's shoes and heartbroken for where this man's been. And so he releases his frustration with a sigh. And then he says, be opened. The scripture, the, the Greek here is really interesting because it says that the chains on his tongues, on his tongue, he only had one, the chains on his tongue was broken, was loosed, and the man began to speak. Now, we stumble into messianic prophecy, and I don't have enough time to, like, hash all of this out, but there's all this prophecy, particularly in Isaiah, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, I pulled for you just to show you. 
It says, this is, a, this is a messianic prophecy, and it's very much speaking of the end of all things. It's eschatological or end time. It's talking about the end. It says that the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Check, we've done that. It says that the ears of the deaf unstopped. Jesus has just done that. Then shall the lame leap, leap like a deer. We see in Acts, uh, the early chapters of Acts, a lame man walking, and then the um, apostles pointing to the scripture. And the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. So what we have here is this kind of eschatological prophecy of what's going to happen at the end of all things, that the, the deaf and the mute are going to begin to hear and begin to speak. And as this is taking place, we're getting a foretaste in the life of Jesus of what will come when all things are done. In other words, this is the first bite of the meal that we're going to receive in the day that Jesus returns. And in the first bite, we have deaf men, mute men, regaining their hearing and their speech. Now, if we follow that line of thought and we assume with, with many scholars and even the apostles quoting these scriptures as Jesus heals, then what we find, again, is not that Jesus is just after healing for the sake of earning the affection of the crowd, but that Jesus is actually burdened, brokenhearted over deafness. That Jesus, if Jesus' end goal, listen, this is just good theology, okay? The end goal of creation is that all things are renewed. Okay, we, we did the too narrow of an evangelical Western presentation of the gospel that said, pray the prayer and you don't have to go to hell. Fundamentally kind of true. Give your life to Jesus sincerely and you won't have to go to hell. But that wasn't the whole promise of the scripture that you get to escape hell. The promise of the scripture was that there's going to be a renewing of all things. The promises of the scripture is that you will live forever in the eternal glory of God and all things would be made right. The promise of the scripture is that we would have total and perfect peace, that every tear would be wiped from our faces, that we would belong to him fully. We would know him even as we're known. The promise of the scripture is much more grand and beautiful and profound. So if the promise, the end goal of God is that Eden on steroids is the end game, then we can assume that when Jesus stands before a man who is so far from Eden, he has a burden. When he sighs, I think he, not not to over-insert my ideas into the text, but there's a chance that when he sighs, he's going, this is just not what I created him for. This is not Eden. Look at the effects of sin. Now, there are many of us who struggle with all kinds of sicknesses in the room, and, and we want Jesus to heal us today. And by God, we do want Jesus to heal us today. But I can promise you this, that there is a day coming when Jesus will heal you. There is an absolute finite day approaching in which you will, you will be fully restored. There is a day coming when all things will be made right. And the sorrow of Jesus, when he stands over Jerusalem and he just weeps, Jesus is weeping over the city saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together the way that a mother hen gathers her chicks. I wanted you. I wanted to restore you. I wanted to heal your bodies. I wanted your souls to prosper. I made you for more than this. That, that, that sorrow we see released as Jesus sighs. Now, church, as I kind of wind down to a conclusion, Brad, you can come get ready to service communion. I, I want to say this. We, Caitlin, y'all come. Sorry, I just threw that on you. We, we cannot be a church that believes in miracles because we want heightened spiritual atmospheres so that we can be entertained 
We can't be a church that wants miracles only because we think if we had miracles, then we could prove to all the other churches that we're theologically accurate and they're wrong. We, we can't be a church that wants to use people's testimonies just because it makes us look good or feel good. That's sliding right down the same road of putting the most charismatic person up front and seeing how many people we can attract. Like, for what? That's not the burden. And I see people all the time say, I'm bur- I want to see the sick heal. And it's like, until you, are, until you can pray for the sick with some tears in your eyes, I'm not sure that that's really what you want. You want the sick to be healed so that you can prove to everyone that you're God's anointed chosen one. And in our ministries, we talk to our altar ministry about this. Whether people are healed or not, or delivered or not, or they get breakthrough or not, when people come to the altar, we try to teach our altar team ministry. The most important thing is obviously Jesus be glorified, but this person be very aware of the love of God aimed at them violently. Whether they're healed or not, they need to walk away understanding that God is violently in love with his son or daughter. But that's not what churches have done. Not charismatic churches. And I just want to say, we've got to have the burden. You guys, the burden that ties prayer and evangelism together. The burden that, that doesn't just want to be the, the trendy church or doesn't want to be able to pat ourselves on the back and said, we did our duty or we did enough so that God loves us. The burden that says, I've looked at my family, my region, my workplace through the eyes of Jesus. And I see addiction, and that's not what God created. I see people in depression, and that's not what God created them for. I see people bound up in sex addiction, and that is not God's design. You see people hurting and pain. That's not what God made them for. You're broken over creation, and you step into intercession and evangelism and praying for the sick with a broken heart. If you don't have a broken heart, you should not have a ministry. You guys hearing me? And what they want of Jesus in this hour is they want the glory of ministry, entertainment, excitement. And Jesus says, your hearts aren't broken or pure. I'm going over there. And we need to be very aware of that. Because the last thing we want is to grieve the Holy Spirit and for the Spirit to say, I'm going over there. I'm going to leave you now to go do pure ministry. Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet? We'll get ready to receive communion. I want us to pray again. God, break our hearts. May we carry the burden. May we know the sigh of our Messiah.